this or not. It is, it, uh, I'm not kidding. It is getting nuttier by the, by the minute. Uh, did, you, did you hear what happened in the Army, Tony, with the two dogs and the medals? Did you, <laughs> did you hear that story? Well, for those of you that missed it, this is, this is really... <laughs> it's from Washington. It says, Embarrassed Army officials admitted Friday two dogs were among 21 members of the 25th Infantry Division in Vietnam approved for Bronze Star medals last month. <laughs> Griffin M.K. 9 and Smokey M. Griffin were among those listed in General Order Number 10620, citing them for, quote, meritorious service in connection with military operations against, uh, against hostile forces earlier this year. <laughs> and uh, uh, Silver, you know, that's not a bad medal either, actually, the Bronze Star, you know. <laughs> It's not, that's a little better than the Good Conduct Medal, all right. It says an Army spokesman said the order was revoked Thursday after learning it was a hoax. The matter is under investigation, the spokesman said. It might have been funny at another time, but it ain't funny now, the spokesman said. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that, that, uh, you're hearing this thing, and having been in the Army, that, that reminds me of, uh, of a thing I actually saw. You know, I know... I shouldn't really tell you this story, but, well, all right, I'll tell you, but give me, give me a little of that uh, hoax music, please, Tony, a little of that razzmatazz there. All right, that's... <laughs> yeah, you know, pretty, oh, let, let, let it soak in here, Tony. Da, 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 da. Well, listen, that's not all. I mean, this hoax busy, you just put it up there. I'm going to use that later. That's not the only hoax that's going on. Vince Staten, a male student at the University of Tennessee won election Thursday as a write-in candidate in the University of Tennessee's homecoming queen competition. Staten, whose candidacy was recognized valid by the homecoming advisory board, after all, he got the votes, collected 2,500 out of 4,000 votes. Whether Staten, a communications graduate student from Kingsport, Tennessee, would be crowned or not was left up to the UT Student Tribunal which planned the meeting later on, on the question. The ten senior women who had been nominated by various student organizations shared the remaining 1,600 votes, which gives them an average of about 160 votes apiece, and he got 25. <laughs> oh, he must be awful cute. That's, <laughs> oh, you see a lot of that type around. But uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, the story of the, the dogs and the metal, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I... I uh, I mean, the little things like that happen, and, and a lot of times they happen with two guys sitting around in an office, and somebody says, hey, wouldn't it be great if... And the next thing you know, it's in Washington, there's a congressional investigation. Did I ever tell you about this friend of mine who, who had a fantastically terrible thing? Now, I'm going to tell you a story tonight, which uh, which uh, is really embarrassing in a lot of ways. And and, uh, and it's, this is... a. a since I am a friend of the guy to whom it happened, this is not hearsay. I'm telling you the actual, the actual story. For any of you guys that were in the army, or are in the army right now, you can just you can feel the back, the hair on the back of your neck raise 
when you hear this terrible story, because when I, when I found out about it, and we talked about it later, I'll tell you, he says he wakes up late at night, sometimes even now, and he looks up at the ceiling, and he thinks of this fantastically horrible feeling. Yeah, give me a little of that nightmare music, Tony, a little nightmare music there. This is a... Have you ever had a nightmare? I mean, of the kind where, where, you, where you wake up, you try to wake up, and you struggle, you struggle through this endless swirling vortex of sleep trying to reach consciousness you know you fight you, you know you're asleep and yet you can't wake up you know that terrible feeling you're struggling you're in the middle of an unbelievable nightmare something fantastic is happening it's terrible you got to wake up you can't tell exactly what it is just some awful's happening ah! that's nightmares bill friends oh well this is what happened to my face he, he lived through a nightmare keep that up tony we're going to use that terrible nightmare. This guy was in the Signal Corps, see? And, uh, I, having been in the Signal Corps myself, I can tell you, the Signal Corps is never seen in movies. Uh, most people, when they think of, you know, they think of the Army in movies and so on, what do they think of? They think of the infantry. They always see Van Johnson leading a platoon somewhere. They, uh, often will think of the Tank Corps. You see a lot of tanks in, uh, Army movies, you know, the war movies. And you, and you see endless numbers of airplanes. So, you know, a lot of people think that the wars are fought by only guys in tanks and airplanes and, you know, guys running up a hill with a bayonet. But uh, there's another bunch of guys that, that, that never get into movies, and among them is the Signal Corps. And uh, this is a very, very, uh, very esoteric group. And they don't stand around with flags, you know, wave flags or have smoke signals. Although, you know, they still have that ancient crossed flag symbol for the Signal Corps. You've, you've seen the Signal Corps insignia. It's two crossed flags. What color are they, Tony? Come on. They're enameled. Most uh, army insignia are gold, but these are enameled. It's one of the few that have color. You don't remember? Well, I'll give you a clue. One of them is white. You're close. <laughs> All right, what's the Signal Corps colors? When you uh, when you see Signal Corps braid on a guy's hat, maybe a lot of you people out there, you know, you see somebody walk on the street and you think he's a soldier, you know. But uh, they're all different kinds of soldiers, and if you look at the hat that the guy's wearing, if he's wearing a cloth hat, you know, the, the little uh, overseas-type cap, you'll notice that there's braid around the top of it. And the braid tells you what, kind of an outfit he's in. doesn't tell you the specific one, but it tells you what kind of an outfit he's in, what kind of a soldier he is. So if if, uh, if the guy's infantry, what color does he have, Tony? Come on. That's sky blue. It's that real light blue. Uh, if, uh, if a guy's in the artillery, what does he have? Red. He's got this red that runs around. What does a tanker have? Well... What the, he has the, <laughs> what, what does the signal, well, I'll tell you what signal corps, if you ever see a signal corps soldier, you'll notice he's wearing orange braid, and it's got little white flecks in it, that's orange and white, well, this is a strange group, see, and they, they, they tend to brood a lot, uh, <laughs> for one thing, uh, much more than ordinary soldiers, for one thing, they, they have no identity, most people don't have, they have no slightest idea what the signal corps does. They're never seen in movies. Uh, nobody, uh, they hardly ever earn medals. 
uh, rank is very difficult to attain in the Sigma Corps. They have a low TO, and the, the work is highly technical, highly complex. It's just like anything else. You know, it's like, it's like society. The more you know, the less you tend to earn. <laughs> it's the truth. So you wind up, you know, some guy's a professor of physics at some university. What's it? You know, he knocks down about as much as, uh, oh, the average, uh, well, he doesn't do as well as the average cross-country truck driver. That's true, you know. So uh, the more you know, the less you, you're, you're approved of or less you're appreciated in the world. So to be in the single court to begin with, generally, you got to have an IQ of at least 125 just to get in. After that, they send you to school for a year. You know, microwave techniques, Kirchhoff's Law. You're learning all about magnetron oscillators and ring oscillators and keyers. You're learning all this electronic stuff. And finally, after one year of solid work, and they'll flunk you out, you know, very real quick. You'll learn all this stuff. You work with the slide rules. After one year, you achieve your rank. You're given your rank because you've been graduated from the MOS school and now you know all about long lines, ultra-high-frequency communication techniques. You're made a full PFC. <laughs> That's the truth. And so this is the, they tend to brood a lot. You know, they, they sit around, and, and, uh, and of course, they're around the equipment. Equipment will make you brood anyway. If you're around a lot of electrical equipment, you tend to become very introspective because you know how chancy everything is. Furthermore, all the equipment that's around you is dangerous to begin with. And they, well, you notice how that, you, you know, Jerry, here are the engineers brood a great deal here, complain a lot. They talk about the coffee breaks and all that stuff. Well, sure, because they're constantly dealing with equipment which is very mysterious to them, and, that, and it, and it all invariably breaks down. So you have a feeling that nothing's going to work, whereas the guy who knows nothing about equipment has a feeling of uh, confidence in it. Oh, a lot of people say, oh, well, uh, it must be right. It's computerized. Listen, any guy that works with computers would laugh at that. I mean, he knows what goes wrong with computers. And so this friend of mine is in the signal corps, just like I was. And he went through the first few or three uh, uh, months I'm with this guy, you know, and, and we get separated. He goes off to his school. I go off to my school. And then I never hear from him again. Time goes on. On and on and on it goes. And years later, I meet this friend of mine, and he's he's haggard. He's got a worried look on the eyes. We're out of the army a long time, and uh, he's got got this nervous way about him. And I said, uh, right away, I didn't want to bring it up. See, we're sitting there having a coffee, meeting after years, and uh, I was approaching it kind of delicately, and because uh, he did look very strange, very changed. And finally, I said, to him, "Look, Sal, I just got to mention something to you." What's happened to you? You're jumpy. You used to be the coolest type I ever knew. You were really on top of it. You'd laugh. You know, laugh a minute. Sally used to call you. Oh, Sally, nothing but jokes, you know? What happened? I said, well, you mean you don't know what happened to me in the Army? I said, no, what happened? He said, I thought everybody knew what happened to me in the Army. I said, what, what, what happened to you? Obviously, you, you know, you're okay. You're not, you're not shot. You, you look great. I mean, physically, but it looks like something's really bothering you. He says, yes, it isn't physical. It's mental. I said, what'd you do? What happened? He says, well, it's a long story. And I want to tell you it's a nightmare. You don't want to hear it. I said, oh, come on, Sal. 
Come on, I'm your old friend. Tell it to me. He says, well, okay. I'll tell it to you. A little nightmare music, Tony. He says, I'll have to take you back through time. Through time and endless space. You remember how happy I used to be? Old joke a minute, Sal, they call me. Remember that? I was always good for giving a hot foot to somebody or, you know, buying a rubber cigar for a guy or jokes all the time, right? I said, yeah, Sal. No more. My world come tumbling down. Never be able to rebuild it again. I can't sleep no more. Because of a joke. A joke I did. I didn't mean nothing by it. But oh my God. What happened? Come back with me now. Into my nightmare. Sal, go ahead. Tell me, Sal. Tell me, Sal. What happened? He says, well, you remember they sent me to teletype school when you guys went out the radar? I said, yeah. Everybody thought you had, you know, you really had it made. They sent you to teletype school. Obviously, if you're working at teletype, you're not going to be where there's a lot of shooting. They don't carry teletypes up in the front, you know, in the foxholes. See, yeah, that's what I thought. So I went to teletype school. He says, you know, 26 weeks learning how to operate and maintain Model 15T teletypes, Model 19G teletypes. I could fix anything that went wrong with a teletype machine in my sleep. I could operate a teletype machine 40, 50, 60 words a minute. I could repair them. I could fix them. I could install them. I became the best teletype man that probably the signal core ever turned out. I said, yeah, what happened? Well, one day, they assigned me to this outfit. They put me on a boat, took off from the West Coast, and we sailed and sailed and sailed, and all of a sudden, we're on this little island, little tiny island. He said, we're way out in the Pacific. There's nothing but sand, a couple of palm trees, and this signal shack. I said, yeah? What happened? He said, well... I found out that this was the key communications signal shack of the entire southwestern Pacific. All the messages from the War Department, from Washington, from every place in the world, went right through that shack. I went on to all the places out in the Pacific. Went to Australia, India, China, Burma, all those places. We were a relay station. I says, yeah. Well... You sure you don't know what happened to me? I says, no, Sal, I don't. Oh, come on, everybody knows. I says, no, Sal, I do not know what happened to you. He says, well, I'll bet you know when I tell you. You'll remember it. Has everybody in the world heard about it? I says, everybody in the world heard about it. Yeah. He sat there for a minute, tears in his eyes. I bought him another Jack Daniels. I said, come on, Sal. It's all over now for Christ. No, it ain't. It's not all over now. It pursues me. Wake up three in the morning and think of it. I'll never forget it. I said, well, Sal, come on. Tell me. It's okay. I'll tell you. This is me and another guy. In fact, he's 
maybe three or four guys. We used to work shift work in the teletype room there. We had this lieutenant who was over us. And we'd come in, it's like you'd have a four to six shift, and maybe you'd be on for two hours, then you'd be off for four hours, you come back on, he says, you know, it's very tense work, you run out of the tele, you can't make no mistakes on a teletype machine, so everything has got to run, you got to keep working on this stuff, so he didn't work these long eight-hour shifts. He said, you know how he used to work? He said, we worked four on, four off, and four on. He said, nothing else to do anyway on the side. There's absolutely nothing to do. He says, didn't even have a good Coke machine. Coke machine just sat there. He said, burned out a fuse or something the first week we got it. Never did nothing. Just sat there and rusted. Once in a while it rained. He said, it's the only thing we ever had to do. Was go out and look at the rain. Birds had come down, sit down once around, walk around. That was the only exciting thing. He says, the only excitement we ever actually had was, was mating season when we'd see the birds mate. Boy, was that exciting. How long do you think I was there? I said, I don't know. Said, how long? Three years. Three years. Month in, month out. I said, yeah. They don't have no summer there. They don't have no winter. It's always hot. Nothing. Same day. Christmas, it's 105. July 4th, 105. Mother's Day, 105. Same thing all the time. Once every three months, a boat would come. What do you think it would bring us? Do you think it would bring us a lot of magazines and films and stuff? No. Bring us 4,000 new rolls for the teletype machine. That's all. I see. yes, uh, what happens? I'm bored, right? I said, yeah. He says, well, one night, I'll tell you what happened. One night, says they had a whole bunch of soldiers down at the other end of the island. These guys were some kind of a engineering battalion or something. We was told not to have anything to do with them because we were security, you know, high security stuff, all these secret messages going all the time through our place. We couldn't even talk to the guys on the other side of the fence. And therein lies the story. Says one night, says way at the end of the war, He's, we've been hearing all this stuff, you know. War's about to end. And I'm sitting there one night with my friend. We're just sitting there. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. We got the radio on. We're listening to Armed Forces Radio. These guys are playing these records. They come on with a newscast. They talk about how it looks like maybe the war might end sometime in Europe. It's going to go on for another thousand years where we were. So we're sitting there, and my friend, he plugs in his teletype, and we work it on a closed circuit, see, where he can talk to me on his teletype. He said, we used to do that once in a while. We'd sit and tell dirty jokes to each other on the teletypes. I plug mine in the wall, see, it's a little closed circuit there. I plug mine in, he plugs his in, and we're sitting there typing stuff back and forth to each other. Right across the room, you know, we'd have a big gag. Uh, yeah, uh, you'll never guess what happened. I said, what? As well, he teletypes a thing on a, my teletype. It comes on. It's some dirty joke. I laugh. I'm sitting there. He says, smoking a big cigar. Been there three. He said, I've been there so long now, I got moss all over me. I got barnacles. Barnacles. My brain's got barnacles. Sometimes I wake up at three in the morning. I think about it. Barnacles on my brain. All I can here at night when I wake up is the sound of that teletype. You ever listen to the teletype for three straight years? You hear it once in a while on these newscasts, right, Tony? You hear... You ought to hear that 24 hours a day. 
He, we slept in the next room. I couldn't get that teletype out of my head. It was always... Ding, ding, ding. Night and day. What has it got on it? He says, some guy, some chowder head out in Manila's getting a medal. Some guy someplace else is ordering 4,000 rolls of toilet paper. That's the kind of stuff went through all the time. Messages and code and stuff. Nothing. Nobody ever spoke to us. Never one message came that was for me. It was for anybody else around that island. That's what happened. What 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 did this do? All right, I'll tell you. He's just before Christmas. And friends, that's why I'm telling you this story. He's just before Christmas. We're sitting there, the rumors are going around. About how the war is gonna end. My buddy's sitting over at his teletype machine there, and he teletypes this dirty joke to me, and I laugh. I'm drinking coffee. That's all we ever did. Drank coffee all the time. Drank coffee, smoked cigarettes. That's all. You remember that from the Army? He saw him drinking his coffee, see, out of my canteen cup. In my canteen cup, would you believe it? I had drunk so much coffee out of my canteen cup that the bottom was getting worn thin. And it was permanently brown inside from coffee crud. And I'm drinking my coffee, and I think of a funny joke, see? And so I type it out on a teletype machine. <laughs> I laugh. I type it out. My buddy sitting over there, he sees it coming through, see? And he laughs. <laughs> and we said a couple of more like that to each other back and forth. And finally, it's time for us to go off shift. After another hour or so, we forgot all about the jokes. Time to go off shift. I said, yes, go on, Sal, go ahead. Well... I find it hard to talk about this. I said, what'd you do? I said, well, I went to bed, of course. That's all we could do around that place. We'd sleep. Sleeping was great. Just sleep. Sometimes, you know, when I had a three-day pass, he said, they give me three-day passes on this rotten island. What would I do? Sleep three days. I said, what happened when you get a two-week pass? What do you think? Sleep two weeks. It's all we do, let in sleep. That's a vacation. Speaking of sleep, this is W.O.R., New York. And so he says, I'm packed away in a sack there. I can hear the teletype machines go. So I drift off in a sleep. Little did I realize that I was about to enjoy the first and the last Actually, the last untroubled night of sleep that I was to have in my life. I just drifted off. If I'd have known it was the last night I was to sleep ever without a nightmare, I think I'd have enjoyed it more. You don't realize what you got when it's gone. I said, Sal, what happened? Oh, God, what happened? So I'm sleeping away there. He says, it's great. He says, I'm sleeping, I'm... You know how the kind of dreams that Dagwood always had? I said, yeah, I've seen the Dagwood comic strip. He said, you know, he's running around in the clouds, and these beautiful girls are chasing him with flutes and stuff like that. He said, I'm dreaming this great dream. I'm dreaming of a great mess hall in the sky where they always got steaks, ice cream, no cold cuts and spam. So I'm laying there, just a-sleeping away. And all of a sudden, I start to hear a sound. I thought at first it was in my dream. I hear pow, pow, 
Boom. I hear it booming away. I hear some cannons going off. Pow, 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 pow. I start to wake up. Pow, 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 pow. And all of a sudden, pow, I hear another one. I wake up. I'm laying in my bunk. And I can hear some booming around out there. Cannons going off. I hear guys shooting guns and cheering and yelling. And I'm all excited. I can't figure out what's happened. Maybe the island's under attack or something. I wake up. I, I'm sitting up in a bed. I'm putting on my shoes. I'm, and I hear a boom, boom. Guys yelling again out there. And all of a sudden, this guy runs into the into the bunk there, into the into the cabin. He runs in. This guy I knew from the morning shift. He runs in. He's all excited. And he's got his 45. And he's been shooting. I said, what's the matter? He said, didn't you hear? Didn't you hear? I said, what? What? Didn't you hear? He said, oh, come on out, Riggs. We're having a big... A big celebration. Hurry up. The captain's out there. We're all having this. I said, what happened? He said, war's over. War's over. Did you hear about that? It's all over in the Pacific. It's all done. I said, it is. But then it hit me. Oh, no. Oh, my God, no. I put on my shoes real careful. And I could hear him celebrating for miles around him. So I go down to the signal room where the teletypes were, and all these guys are sitting there, they're drinking bourbon and stuff. He said, I don't know where they got it from. Somebody's got it stashed where they bring it bourbon, hollering. The lieutenant is standing on top of the teletype machine. He's got his hat on backwards, and he's singing and dancing. I walk in, and he says, I see my friend, Howie. And he's got a white face. He's scared. He's hiding under the wastebasket. I walk in. I know what happened. So, my God, what do I do? What do I do? And I walk up to the lieutenant, and I says, excuse me, lieutenant, what happened? He said, didn't you hear it? The war's over. And listen, you guys, what kind of stupidness is this? Here you get this high-priority message last night to General MacArthur from the War Department, and you didn't forward it on. How come? We sent it on this morning for you. You guys are really screwing up. You're lousing up. How come you didn't send it on? I said, you sent the message that was on my desk on? So of course. High priority was marked. And then I realized it was all over the Pacific. As a joke, the night before, I had typed a high priority message just in a gag with high priority code signs to my buddy sitting across the room. A message from General Eisenhower that said, Congratulations, General Douglas MacArthur. Carry on in the Pacific. We announced the successful conclusion of World War II in the European Theater of Operations. Signed your old friend, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Chief Headquarters, London. He said, I typed it over and sent it to my friend for a gag. And the lieutenant came in the next morning and sent it on to MacArthur. And now there were messages coming in all over the teletype machines from all over the Pacific. Here was a pile of messages from Admiral Nimitz congratulating General Omar Bradley. We'd sent him the other way. They're going back and forth all over the world. I started it. Oh, my God. What to do? He said, so me and Howie, we're hiding under the wastebasket. We know it's got to come. And sure enough, about 11.15, so in fact, it was exactly 11.22, I remember, because it came out later in the court martial. At 11.22, machine number four, the red one, from the War Department, 
goes ding, 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 ding. That's a high-priority message. That is somebody big on the line. Ding, 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 ding. With that, the lieutenant goes over and he picks up a message. He turns around. And he says, At ease, you guys! At ease! I read the following message from the War Department. General Marshall's headquarters. Unfounded rumor about end of war in the ETL is to be squelched immediately at the guilty parties for beginning a chain of high-priority coded messages to the effect that the war was ended in the ETO must be tracked down immediately. Signed, Marshall. Bum, ba-dum, bum. He said, I just sat there, my head buzzing. Howie is laying flat out on the floor. The lieutenant is walking around the room now, looking at all the clipboards. He's trying to find the receipt, which always comes through immediately following a high-priority message. We knew he ain't going to find no receipt. We just watch him walk around the room. He said, I see that in my dreams. I see it in my dreams, even now. That lieutenant walking, looking at each clipboard... And then he turned. He looked me right in the eye and said, Corporal. And all the while, out in the distance, we could hear warships booming their cannons in celebration. Airplanes doing loop-to-loops high overhead. GIs getting themselves drunker than skunks all over the Pacific. Guys leaping up out of foxholes, embracing stray Japs. He looked me right in the eye and said, Corporal, come back to my office. We got some talking to do. We're going to have to fill out some forms. I think you're going to see some interesting moments in the next couple of days. Me and Howie trailed across the sand the G.I.s running all around us, waving their bottles of hooch and yelling and screaming because they don't know yet. You could hear the troops all the way, as far away as the Philippines, cheering. That was 12 million miles away. And I had started it all. The whole shebang. How do you like that for a nightmare? <laughs> that is a true story. Did you, did you ever hear about that whole big thing that started with the, the rumors of the war over and all that stuff? You, you must have. Sure. And this, my friend, was involved in the whole thing. You curious what they did to him? Well, I don't have to tell you that he no longer was a corporal. I also don't have to tell you that there was a trial. He got nine months. 
And they suspended it. Because it was obviously a gag. He was, you know, boredom. He spent the rest of his time in the service selling Milky Way bars in a PX. On an island so remote that they didn't even find out that the war was over when it actually was over for over two years after it was over. Every six months, they would get one box of Milky Ways, which he would have to write down carefully and count. And he would spend the next six months selling the box of Milky Ways and begin it all over again. He said, I've never forgotten that. Never. So you see, it's no way of knowing what a little thing that you're doing is going to happen like, you know. Did I tell you about the time I saw this happen in a newsroom one day? I saw it happen right in a newsroom in Cincinnati. One of the newsmen, we had an all-night news operation, and just for a gag, he typed up on this yellow newspaper. He typed it up. It didn't even look like the teletype stuff. He typed it up. And he just out of the blue, see? He typed up this thing that said, uh, the U.S. War Department announces the mobilization of all troops for a secret operation, which is to begin in 24 hours. Further details later. And the morning newsman came in and saw that, and it was a gag, obviously a gag. He read it on the air. 28 million phone calls, people screaming, guys jumping out of windows. The FBI came. <laughs> I was right there, and they were looking at all of us, and they were going around asking us questions like, uh, you know, what the what kind of subversive types we were and all that. My friend was... He just wrote this out as a gag, you know. It was a, it was a fake news. I mean, he figured the guy in the morning would realize this. If he didn't realize, you know, there should be something else on the wire about it, something else, something like that. But no, no, this this uh, guy with this totally uh, totally literal mind, this Bill Doc, he reads it on the air and as the, as the lead item on the 8 o'clock news. Oh, you can imagine what happened there, friend. <laughs> That guy that did that is now a disc jockey in Chicago, and uh, still very scared. But uh, these these uh, little practical jokes, you know, things like that. Oh, listen, I'll tell you, one of the worst things that ever happened to me in the way of a practical joke. Let's we got a couple of ding dogs to do here. I don't know why I'm telling you these terrible stories. Let's see, how about sharing your Christmas with needy children in the hospital wards throughout the W O R area? This is a good charity, by the way. It's the W O R Children's Christmas Fund. They give gifts to all the kids that are in hospitals, needy kids, and they're really good gifts, too. These are not little celluloid toys. And uh, if you'd like to contribute a dime or a dollar or anything, send it to Box 710. That's our frequency. Box 710, Times Square Station, New York. And the zip is 10036. Okay? And uh, how about that ding-dong in there? Hit it, Tony. What are trees for? Trees are for boys to climb, for cats to get caught up in, so little girls can cry about. Trees are to catch kites, for hunters to hide behind, and squirrels to hide in. Trees are for people to look at, to hang a swing in, to pitch a tent under. Trees make an open field a park. They beautify a street. They make a house a home. Trees slow down the wind, settle the dust. Trees are for picnics 
and for poets to write about. Trees buffer the raindrops, stop erosion, hold the snow. What are trees for? Trees are for everyone. This message brought to you as a public service by this station and the Soil Conservation Service, U.S. Department of Agriculture. Oh, isn't that nice? A commercial in favor of trees. Yeah. How about a nice one in favor of the sky? It seems to me the sky is in more trouble than trees these days. But uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, we got a couple other things here. Pursuit of Dick Cavett. By playing down his intellect and emphasizing the small town image, he has created a place for himself in the wee hours. But who is Dick Cavett? An absorbing profile this week in TV Guide. The same issue examines the fine art of French cooking with an invitation to dine with Julia Child and investigates the delicate art of enhancing America's image abroad. An interview with Frank Shakespeare, director of the United States Information Agency. Good reading this week in TV Guide. TV Guide, New York's biggest selling weekly magazine. America's biggest selling weekly magazine. TV Guide, on sale everywhere. Uh, speaking of uh, minor birds and Christmas, uh, I have a fantastic Christmas story. A lot of people write in and ask me to mention when I have a story appearing in a magazine. And I have a Christmas story in the current or the December. That's the Christmas issue of Playboy, which is now on the stand. So you can pick it up. Uh, let's see. It's been on the stand. Oh, about a week, two weeks, something like that now. So that's this current Playboy. And uh, you pick it up. Matter of fact, you know, that, that issue of Playboy, I don't, uh, I don't know whether you follow magazines much, but uh, and this has nothing to do with the commercial, I'm just mentioning a fact about it, but uh, you know, most magazines their big issue of the year, every magazine has a big issue of the, of, of the year, sort of like the culmination of the year. Uh, some have them in the spring, like uh, if a magazine is about clothing, generally have a gigantic issue, you know, the new clothing issue and all that, but Playboy's big issue has always been Christmas, big fat issue, and uh, I've had a story in the Christmas issue now, Playboy, for the last five years. Five years, roughly. So uh, the current one is now on the stands. You know, uh, speaking of getting yourself in trouble because of a, of a joke, you know, a popular, a little... Uh, one of the worst things that ever happened to me in my life was because of a, of a uh, practical joke. Oh, man. And, uh, and, and, and it's the kind of thing that happens... I, I don't know whether you can call that a, what, what I'm going to tell you a practical joke or not, but uh, it was it was in the same category. What well, was it a practical joke, really? Now let me think about it. Well, it was just a dumb thing. <laughs> I just did a dumb thing. Here's what happened. I'm in the band, say, in the high school band. Well, uh, you've probably seen high school bands, and there's two kinds. Most people, when they think of a high school band, they think of a marching band. Well, there's two kinds of bands. There's a marching band, and then there's a concert band. Well, a concert band is usually larger. It's a, it's a concert band. And uh, our particular concert band was a, was a national prize winner. As a matter of fact, we had won two or three years running. We'd been 
uh, one of the top nationally recognized concert bands in the country. We didn't have much of a, you know, we had a pretty good marching band, but we never, we never won uh, national uh, titles like that. But we had a, a national concert band, and so I'm playing the sousaphone. Now, whenever you see a, a band set up, if you're sitting out in the audience, well, how does the band, how's the band set up? In other words, where are the different instruments? Well, usually on the left, as you're facing the band, up on the stage, you'll notice that the clarinets are usually in the area where the violins are in an orchestra. You'll notice ranged around the middle, uh, in fact, facing the stage usually, facing the audience in a sort of circle, semicircle, uh, facing the conductor is the brass. Directly behind the trumpets usually are the trombones. And behind that, way in the back, are the sousaphones. Now, the sousaphones are these enormous, you know, the instruments, what most people call tubas. These are sousaphones, the big, uh, big horns that you carry on your shoulders. Actually, the sousaphone is a portable version that's a carrying version of a tuba, but it's got a different name. So I'm sitting in the back on this, this terrible day. Oh, I'll never forget this day. I'm sitting in the back, and we're rehearsing. And I even remember what we are rehearsing. We're rehearsing the overture to the 1812 overture. And that is a, that's a dilly. I want to tell you, that, that anybody who knows anything about uh, band music and orchestral music, one of the great sousaphone and or bass passages in all of written music is in the 1812 overture by Tchaikovsky. It's a tremendously long descending uh, arpeggio, and it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. It goes about 34, 50 bars, and you really have to work on this thing. See, so we love to play this piece of music because, among other things, we had a cannon that would go off. You, you've heard the overture to Adrian. The siege of Moscow, Napoleon. And uh, with the way we, the way our, the way our cannon worked, we didn't have a real cannon. What we had was a milk can, one of these big, uh, you know, regular milk can, you know, with a big top. And the guy had a, 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 it was a blank pistol. And during the last part, when we're going, I'm going to hit the bells, and the cannon start going off. He would shoot the cannon into this thing, and boom. Well, it was a great thing. I thought, you have no idea what a, what a groovy feeling it is, you see, to play this thing. So I used to always make a gag, see. We're, the, the, the sousaphones were raised up from the level of the rest of the band. We would be raised up about, uh, oh, maybe two feet uh, on a platform so that we could sit up higher and we could look down and we could see the conductor and all. You've probably seen the sousaphones raised up. So we're sitting back there on our platform. Now, remember, directly behind me is a drop-off now of about two feet. And I'm sitting in a folding chair. And I have on my shoulder a B-flat, a double B-flat, con sousaphone. Not a plastic one, but a polished, magnificently polished, gold-plated brass sousaphone. Beautiful instrument. Very expensive instrument, by the way. So I'm sitting back there... And every time we would come to this, this tremendous passage, all the bass players would sort of crouch. You know, we're getting ready to hit this, this, this real doozy of a passage. And our conductor 
he was always a little afraid of the bass section because if the bass section doesn't play that particular passage right, the whole the whole overture goes down the drain. Because at that moment, you see, it's supposed to rise like a great wave. It's like the siege, and uh, it's it's Moscow, and all of a sudden the war, the celebration, the winning, and the victory, and all that stuff. And so when he gives the cue, we go, bum, 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 and it picks up tempo, and it goes on and on and on, and he reaches out with that, that big baton, and he's directing and conducting. Well, I, I used to, I had a bad sense of humor even then, and... Uh, so next to me, the other other sousaphone players, Dunker, a guy named Dunker, another guy named Arnold Rose, all these sousaphone players. We used to we used to wait for this big moment, and we'd kind of kind of crouch for it. You see, it's like it's like uh, weightlifters getting ready to, to you know to throw a fantastic weight. Because I guess a lot of people are not aware of the physicality of music. I'm sure that people who listen to music who've never played an instrument don't know what it takes out of you physically. Uh, you know that there's an old there's an old uh, there's an old musician's axiom that anybody who plays an oboe has got scrambled eggs for a brain that it just blows his head right out and there's some truth to that that's a tough instrument to play I, I've known listen I've known guys that have become permanently neurotic because they they learned to play at the wrong age a peck horn that's a French horn the French horn is one of the most treacherous things that I've ever seen, ever in life, any kind. It's more treacherous than a woman. And treacherous, I mean. And I've known guys, listen, I've known guys that were national prize-winning soloists when they hit, for some reason, totally, un, you know, they, they hit a passage like in Wagner. It's supposed to be a great... It goes... You know how the, how the French horn goes? And he's been playing this for 19 years. He gets the cue and he goes... Ah! Out comes this blat. Why? Why did it do it? Well, are, are you curious what it'll do playing a peck horn? I know one guy that got so mad at his peck horn, his French horn, he became literally neurotic, and he made being neurotic his career. You know who that is? Come on. Don't you know who the most famous ex-peck horn player is? Milt Kamen. <laughs> you notice how nervous he always is? He got it from the peck horn. Oh, Milt and I are old friends, you know. Milt used to tell me, he said, oh, oh, man. He says, I'd go home sometimes. He says, I'd cry for three hours. He says, that crummy peck horn, that French horn used to get me. He used to come out. He used to wake up at night and chase me around the house. It's terrible. Well, the sousaphone's a little bit like that, a very treacherous instrument, because the sousaphone, you have to have a lot of, you know, real lung power to play this thing. You have to have a tremendous embouchure. You have to have good shoulders. There's no such thing as a little skinny sousaphone player. It just can't be. It's like a little skinny uh, defensive tackle. It doesn't work. And so I sit there, and, and every day we'd, we'd rehearse this thing. Well, I don't know how to tell you this from the terrible moments of my life. I used, to, I used to amuse the rest of the bass section by tilting my chair back with my sousaphone on, just as you know how a runner will tilt and get down, and when the, when the gun goes off, he leaps forward. Well, Shepard used to amuse the rest of his bass player friends by just about two beats before this big thing was to come off, our big arpeggio. I would tilt my chair back, see? I would rock my sousaphone back, and then I would uh, rock forward. Just when he gives us the cue, I go, 
bum, 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 bum. And everybody would laugh. There was a great big groovy thing, and old Dirks would laugh. And, you know, it was kind of nice, harmless little fun, right? This was the day of the senior play. We are rehearsing. The senior play has now been in rehearsal for at least four weeks. And we had this very arty lady. You know, every, every school has this artsy, craftsy teacher. She usually teaches art, and she dabbles in the dramatic club. She wears skirts that she makes herself out of burlap, and she makes her own Mexican jewelry. You know, she's got, the, you know, this kind of lady. She wears her hair pulled right back, and she's forever telling about her trip to Mexico, that kind of lady. Well, she was the head of our dramatic department. I had nothing to do with that department, except one thing. They had been rehearsing and were about to put on the show in one hour and a half in the auditorium where we were playing the overture to 1812. Now, the two things don't mean anything to you, do they? What's the connection, you say? Well, I'll tell you what the connection was. Shepard is sitting at his, on top of his platform, scene. Turks is conducting, and we are really swinging. Boy, we're really going on the overture today. And the cannons start to boom. Turks leans forward with his ivory baton. He's watching the bass players. He gives them that little eye cue. Look out, it's coming up. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One more beat. Shepard tilts back. One, two, three, four. Bam! With that, I suddenly find myself tilting backward. I can't control it. Backward, 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 backward. I start going. I start tilting back. I start... Ah! I fall backward with my shoes upon. Off the back of the platform. For one brief instant, I was aware of a fantastic ripping sound. Ah! Ah! Crash, bang. And I landed on the back of my head. With my horn flopping off to one side, I could see the big, beautiful bell of my horn crunching into a big ball of brass and gilt. Oh! And the band stopped. You hear, oh, oh, the band stopped. There was a fantastic crash. And it was dead silence for just one moment. And then I heard a scream from somewhere out in the auditorium. Ah! And I'm struggling to my feet, and I see this teacher. She's running down the middle of the aisle, her eyeballs popping out. Shepard has just fallen through all of the sets for the senior play with a sousaphone. Can you imagine a hole a bass player wearing his sousaphone makes falling through the sets which were stacked up on the wall behind me? I just went through those things. You know how that lady drives through that platform eight sign? I went right through. What a moment. I can remember laying on my back with my sousaphone wrapped around. I busted that sousaphone to bits, flattened it out, and I can remember Dirk screaming. That sousaphone was one of the new ones. They had just gotten it. And I'm laying on my back, and I can, I could see crumpled wood stanchions. I didn't even know this stuff was behind me. I didn't look. And I see a big hole. I'm looking up to, at the seating through a hole in what looked like the side of a castle. <laughs> I went through nine flats. Well, Miss Breifogle, she screamed. She was the artist. She flipped her bird. You could hear those Mexican bangles rattling and banging for blocks as she came screaming up on that stage. And she looked at Mr. Dirks, right, our poor conductor. She says, look what you've done to my play. Look what you've done. And the entire band, 107 of us, 
were kept for one hour repairing sets with paste, gluing patches on it. <laughs> oh, there are times, friends, when I wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and I can feel myself tilting over backwards. Backwards, faster and faster, and I can hear the roar of the cannon. I can hear Napoleon at the siege of Moscow. Bam, 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 the Marseillaise. And then there's a crash, and I can hear the rattle of Mexican bangles. Don't forget, 9.15 next Monday. That's your assignment.